This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. Thank you very much for having me. I really appreciate um, being invited to be here. I have nothing to disclose today. This talk is going to be about sexual health, and I wanted to begin by giving you a quote that I really like. Uh, It's from a meeting of uh, experts at the WHO, and I love this quote because it really allows us to look at sexual health uh, from a broad perspective and really from the diverse ways that we can look at this. Um, So sexual health is a state of physical, emotional, mental, and social well-being in relation to sexuality. It's not merely the absence of disease, dysfunction, or infirmary. Sexual health requires a positive and respectful approach to sexuality and sexual relationships as well as the possibility of having pleasurable and safe sexual experiences free of coercion, discrimination, and violence. And I think it's so important because there are so many media messages around sex and sexuality and what is, quote, normal. But there is a lot of different types of sex, and there are sex with oneself, masturbation, there's sex with different people, and people have really different definitions about what sex and, and what sexuality is for them. I think it's also important here to note that abstinence, so the choice to not have sex, is a choice. And we want to make sure that we're actually including that when we discuss sex and sexuality with our patients and clients. So what is sexual health? Again, I'm coming at this from a framework of a really broad definition. And I want to start today by talking about how I discuss sexual health with all of my patients. Um, Again, I work with younger people, with adolescents and young adults um, and their children, but I think this really applies to everybody. And I think it's a nice way, especially when we're teaching new providers to come at this with a perspective of, uh, of diverse perspectives and really being inclusive in the way that we talk about this. So there's a lot of different kinds of sex, as I said. And I like to anchor this in two words, pleasure and desire. And I'm going to go into those and really using those as a way to talk to the people that we work with. Very important, sexuality is a normal part of growth and development. And we're going to come back to this again and again today. So what is desire? Sexual desire can be described as a motivation, you know, an interest in in activities or sexual objects or another person. Um, And this meaning of desire is really different for everybody. And it's very complicated. It's influenced by one's biology, psychology, you know, society at large. People desire many things, might be pleasing a partner, feeling sexually desirable, having an orgasm, and it's really different for different people. And we really need to recognize that when we're talking about this subject. We think 
a lot about spontaneous desire because I think that in the media, there's this idea that, you know, you walk into a room, you see someone and you have a spontaneous desire, but that's not reality. You know, mostly desire is responsive. So you don't need desire to be spontaneous because we as humans respond to sexual stimuli and you don't need desire to have sex. And I think that's important to normalize for people. Uh, People have sex for many different reasons. Um, It may make you feel closer to a partner, for example. It might increase your well-being. So there's really a range. And we want to be able to approach this from all of these perspectives so that people don't feel like they need to have spontaneous desire in order to have Uh, pleasurable sex. The second thing I like to focus on is pleasure. And that's about teaching people how to access pleasure. And that might seem like a basic concept or an obvious concept to people, but I think that we don't do this well enough. Um, Certainly in, you know, in my in my clinical practice, in short clinical encounters, we may not talk to people enough about how to access pleasure. And this is a real cornerstone to teaching people about healthy sexual relationships and about sexuality. Pleasure changes over time. You know, what gives you pleasure? Um, Different times of life, things may feel differently. And you know, having pleasurable sex can increase libido. So this is a nice cycle. So it can make you want to have more sex if that is something that um, you uh, desire, that that's part of of what you want for your life. Um, It means different things for everybody. So it's nice to give a really broad type of education about this. So talking about the anatomy, you know, how do certain anatomical parts, like how do you get pleasure out of them for yourself? If you're touching yourself, how do you give pleasure to somebody else? How do you get it? Um, and that different life stages, this pleasure can change. So aging processes, pregnancy, menopause, so different things are going to feel good at different times based on these life processes. Um, illness is another big one that might change the way that your body feels or how you can use your body. And then sexual experimentation, another important cornerstone to providing education. I just talked a lot about a sort of a general framework of how I like to approach sexual health and talking about sexuality. And I really want to emphasize here that all of these things that I've talked about and the things I'm about to talk about really apply to everybody. This is a general approach, but I do want to spend some time today talking specifically about sexuality and individuals with disabilities. People with disabilities are sexual, have diverse ways to express their sexuality. There often is an erroneous belief in society that Individuals with disabilities are not sexual. Sometimes, um, alternatively, people are seen as hypersexual, and I'll talk about that a little bit later. This idea that people are not sexual might be due to sort of a societal framing of individuals with disabilities as childlike. Um, But most people are sexual beings, and people desire love, intimacy, companionship, And people with a range of disabilities are able to have healthy relationships. 
And it's really important to stress that people with disabilities can have satisfying, positive sex, and they can have sexual relationships. I also want to anchor this in this conversation as a human right to have safe opportunities and places to explore sexuality. And that's why it's so important to not avoid this topic, but really dig into this topic and make sure that people understand their rights. Denying people an opportunity to express themselves sexually can actually increase vulnerability to abuse. So perpetrators may offer opportunities for independence or offer opportunities for sex. So it's really important that we are not denying people this opportunity to express themselves um, and give independence where it's appropriate. And this independence is important for growth and development. So we want to make sure that we are not just viewing individuals as dependents and not providing them with this guidance and talking about, you know, when this is appropriate and how to express sexuality in appropriate ways with appropriate people. We always want to respect autonomy and again, acknowledge sexuality and an ability to have intimate relationships. I think there's just a general discomfort with sexuality in society, especially around young people, um, and even more so um, often with individuals with disabilities. And unfortunately, this discomfort can result in providers or educators or even family members not providing sexual education to individuals with disabilities. And again, this comes back to this idea that, you know, people are dependent, they're not going to be having sexual relationships in which they're equal partners. And this is uh, really doing a disservice to individuals. Also, you know, by not allowing social interaction, so isolating people, um, as a way maybe to protect them, um, is also, also detrimental because social learning is how we learn about relationships. So there's a lot of trial and error, and we can only get that by being exposed to other peers. It provides learning experiences, and this is part of educating individuals on healthy relationships. Part of sexuality and talking about sex and sex education is talking about pregnancy. So whether you are a person who is able to get pregnant um, or somebody who can get somebody else pregnant, um, it's important to talk about pregnancy intention and preferences. And these preferences can range from wanting to get pregnant, not wanting to get pregnant, or being ambivalent. And those are all valid feelings that we need to explore with our patients or clients. If pregnancy is desired, it's a right that individuals have. There are a lot of assumptions that are made about um, individuals with disabilities and their ability to care for children or if their children will have uh, disabilities themselves important to not make those assumptions to first actually have a conversation with 
uh, our patients about what are their desires, what are their preferences, and really use that as the starting point for having this type of conversation. I want to now move to sexual education. So I've, I've already talked a, a bit about it, but I think this is the important part of talking about sex and sexuality. Really, so much of it is, is education that we can provide. Um, there are so many physical and emotional changes during development that happen to everybody. And in order to help with this growth and development, we need to provide education on sexual health, right? Because as I said, sexual health and, and sexuality is a vital part of everybody's growth and development. So providing sexual education should be a really broad topic and it should include, you know, issues of how to perform self-exploration um, and then certainly relationship safety. So giving the skills that people need to have safe relationships and then contraceptive methods. So this goes back to what I was just talking about in terms of pregnancy preferences if appropriate, certainly talking about contraceptive methods. You know, often this conversation is left out because assumptions are made that individuals with disabilities are either not having sex or should not be having sex. And both of those assumptions are very dangerous because it prevents people from giving information. And so everybody deserves to have information that's relevant to their health and to their uh, reproductive goals and desires. I wanna spend a little more time here on self-pleasuring because I think it's important. It's important sometimes to be able to give permission for this because people may not um, know about it or may um, feel uncomfortable with this topic. But uh, we know that it's a healthy outlet for sexual desire. You know, of course, there are appropriate contexts for expressing or for self-pleasuring. Um, and so it's important, you know, individuals, for example, with intellectual disabilities may need very concrete examples of public and private spaces um, to be able to explain, you know, where are appropriate contexts for um, exploring oneself. Um, but that's an important part of this education piece. And I think that it's not only educating the individual, but it's also educating the family, um, anybody else who is um, caring for the individual or anybody in their community. Everybody needs privacy. Uh, and everybody should be given some privacy for self-exploration. Certainly, sexual education should be prioritized, like all other aspects of healthcare. For example, in schools, if that's where somebody is receiving sex education, uh, people shouldn't be pulled out for other needs such as additional therapy or tutoring or support. Sexual education should be seen as a vital component of everybody's education. There's sometimes a, a misconception that individuals with intellectual and developmental disabilities are hypersexual. And this can be a result of individuals expressing their sexuality in inappropriate places. And that's because they've lacked education 
potentially on um, places to uh, express uh, their sexuality um, or, um, you know, education on who are appropriate and inappropriate people to um, express their sexuality with. This is important for everybody to have inclusive sexual education practices. So LGBTQI and gender inclusive. Uh, there should not be assumptions made about um, who someone's sexually attracted to. We know that there's a real range of, of feelings um, and there's a diverse expression of sexuality um, among ourselves. So within ourselves and then also um, you know, across different populations. So important to keep this in mind when we are talking about um, sexual, out, uh, sexual education. We do know, unfortunately, that individuals with disabilities, especially developmental disabilities, are more at risk for abuse. There was a study uh, by the Center for the National Center for Victims of Crime that showed between 2009 and 2015, individuals with disabilities were twice as likely to experience violent victimization. And they uh, said that that included uh, rape, sexual assault, aggravated assault, and robbery. And most individuals were abused by people they knew. So we want to educate people on healthy relationships, and we want to be able to provide skills, really concrete skills on how to engage in healthy relationships. Part of that means reviewing consent, what it is, why it's important, how to verbally state consent, and how to continually verbally state consent. So for every new act that someone might be engaging in, they need to be able to verbally consent to that. Um, and then also giving examples of good and bad touch, um, and then how to report and who to report to anything that the individual is concerned about. So because many people have experienced abuse, uh, which is a, a type of trauma, I think it's a, a nice thing to be able to really use a trauma-sensitive framework. Um, by using this type of framework, you don't exclude or further traumatize individuals who've experienced trauma. However, this is useful for everybody, and I use this framework for uh, talking about all kinds of issues uh, with my patients, not just sexual health, but especially in this arena of sexual health, it becomes very important. Um, Trauma-informed care is a strengths-based approach, and it's really an understanding of the impact of trauma and how that impacts the individual um, for the rest of their life. Specifically, it's a good framework as well for individuals with disabilities in talking about sexual health because it really creates an opportunity for individuals to be empowered um, and to have a real sense of control. There is another presentation in uh, the conference today about trauma-informed care, so I'm not going to go into it too deeply. I uh, do want to just highlight some of the ways that I think that it specifically can be used for sexual health. This is um, the framework of the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. There's a lot of different approaches to trauma-informed care, but I like this one. It's very concrete. It's, a, it's an easy um, 
thing to remember. So first it's about, you know, how can understanding of how trauma affects individuals and then a real recognition of the signs of trauma and then to be able to respond in a trauma-informed way to individuals in all parts of the agency where individuals are, are receiving care. And then, you know, most importantly, really resisting re-traumatization. So creating systems, creating environments in which people don't feel like their uh, stress is increased so that we can decrease stressful situations uh, that may re-trigger certain individuals. And I want to just go through these key principles of trauma-informed care um, as they pertain to talking about sexual health for individuals with uh, disabilities. So first of all, um, safety. So we want to create a free of judgment, you know, an environment that is free of judgment or shame. Uh, we want to create um, affirming um, environments where people feel safe to talk about their sexuality. And this is part of, you know, pre providing um, transparency and trustworthiness. And this is really achieved by allowing people to um, understand the context um, and give them information that are going to help them make the decisions that will affect them. And this is really built by giving comprehensive information, which is why I spent a significant amount of time today talking about education. And peer support. So peer support, as I said, is providing community. And this is so essential because it's a mechanism for individuals to teach one another. And I think that that is really powerful and it really builds social connection, which is key to development. Collaboration and mutuality is allowing individuals to take some ownership of their learning experience. So not just dumping a bunch of information that we as the provider might seem that might seem relevant to us, but really allowing people to tell us what is important to them or what do they want to learn and um, what tools you do they think they need to to be successful. And that leads us to empowerment, which is really giving people voice. And this is very important um, in society. Individuals with disabilities often have no voice. And so giving people an opportunity to hear from the individual about what they want, what they need, you know, for example, what are their reproductive goals? What are their goals with sex? What are their goals with their pleasure, desire? really listening to those and, and helping people to achieve them. Cultural, historical, and gender issues. This is, of course, all of these are really important for everybody, but um, for everybody really to consider the multiple identities that individuals embody, that some of those identities, um, there are structural um, inequities that really impact the way that people can receive care and um, in terms of discrimination against certain individuals, certain populations, that all impacts um, the way that people can engage in, in healthcare. So we really want to make sure that we are considering that when we think about how we're talking to people, how we're planning, um, how we're um, developing um, care plans for, for our patients.
I want to pivot now. This might seem like a big pivot, but I think that it's important um, because when we talk about uh, sexual health and, and sexual education, it doesn't only include how to negotiate sexual relationships or how to talk about sexuality. It also includes how to take care of ourselves and, and our own sexual health. So I think this is really important to talk about healthcare maintenance, not just for providers. So not a, you know, not only a good reminder for those of us um, working in healthcare, but also for our patients. And I really see this as part of health equity. So we don't want to leave out any groups. So for example, like individuals with disabilities, if we're making certain assumptions, we don't want to leave them out of a conversation about um, what screening um, should happen for individuals to help um, keep them to keep them healthy. And so I think this is a, an important thing to um, educate our patients on in terms of healthcare maintenance. So I'm going to go through some of the um, important healthcare maintenance um, pieces for um, both clinicians and um, patients to know about. So again, um, there are a lot of different guidelines for things, so I'm not going to go through um, every type of guideline for every healthcare maintenance thing. This is from the U.S. Preventative Services Task Force, so many people use this. This is for pap screening, so pap smears or cytology. So we want to start at 21. Um, 21 to 29, we're going to um, not do HPV testing. And then when individuals are older, 30 to 65, we will um, add in HPV testing. There's a couple of different options here. You can either do every five years with HPV testing um, or every three years with just the PAP or every five years with co-testing, and that's the PAP plus HPV testing. And then for most individuals, we're going to uh, stop around 65. So I'll just, I'll, these slides give a little bit more detail so that you can go back in and look at them. Uh, some new guidelines recently came out from the American Cancer um, Society and it's from 2020, and they're actually recommending a new approach to testing, which is testing people for um, with just a primary HPV test, which is a test alone. Um, unfortunately, this is not really available in many places. And so they say that, you know, if the primary HPV test is not available, co-testing every five years. Uh, so that's with the HPV and the cytology or cytology alone every three years. So I hope that, you know, in the future, we'll have more access to this primary HPV testing uh, because this is um, going to be really um, a, a good leap forward for uh, cervical cancer screening. And then vaccination. So, you know, speaking about HPV, so human papillomavirus, recommending it for all of our young people, 9 to 26, it's a very safe vaccine, uh, preventing cervical cancer. Um, 27 to 45 year olds, really like a, a shared decision making between patient and provider. And this is pretty new, this recommendation. So it's important. So we have patients um, that are much older now who we should be engaging in discussions about this particular vaccine. And then hepatitis B uh, vaccine, recommending it for everybody. This slide I know is busy, but I did want to just give you all the information up there because it's a little bit complicated with the new guidelines um, so that you can kind of reference this later if you are um, uh, 
interfacing with patients who might need sexually transmitted infection screening. So uh, these are from the new, the newest guidelines from the CDC. And um, they're for chlamydia and gonorrhea, and it's depending on whether you're a man or a woman. So that's referring to if you are assigned male at birth or assigned female at birth, um, based on your age and based on certain risk factors, um, you know, whether or not you need screening for chlamydia or gonorrhea or both. And um, just looking at how often we need to be screening people and um, really engaging with them. That's why it's important to be able to talk about sex and sexuality because you need to know what your patients, your clients are doing in order to help advise them and give them the most recent information about, you know, what is recommended from the CDC in terms of screening for uh, sexually transmitted infections. And uh, HIV recommended um, screening test for everybody. Uh, starting around 15 years old, and then certainly, you know, more often if clinically appropriate. And then uh, hepatitis C, uh, at least once in a lifetime um, for um, greater than or equal to 18 uh, years old. And again, also with additional risk factors, uh, screening more often. And then uh, breast cancer screening, this also varies a lot between different organizations. So this is just an example of one guideline from American Cancer Society. And this is for women of average risk. So if they have increased risk um, for various reasons, there's a different guideline. But just looking at, you know, individuals 40 to 44, starting to talk about a potentially starting mammogram every year. Um, and then moving to, you know, 45 to 54, really getting a mammogram yearly, and then over 55, switching to a mammogram every other year or potentially um, staying with the yearly. So, again, these are all really conversations that are individualized to our patients um, based on, um, you know, who they are, their reality, what their comfort level is. Um, but so these are some, just some nice guidelines for providers. And finally, just to sum up, uh, I want to just encourage everybody to, um, you know, encourage individuals to have satisfying sex through their lifespan and whatever satisfying sex means for them. That may be not having sex, having sex with themselves, having sex with others um, and talking really about sexuality is a natural, healthy part of development for everyone. And I can't you know, stress that enough, that this is really something that we want to talk to everybody about and talk about it in the framework. Um, if you liked what I presented today about, you know, this framework, you know, not just the absence of disease, but really talking about the emotional, physical, um, social part of sexuality. And I just want to leave you with, you know, everyone deserves the possibility of pleasurable sex without coercion and violence. And these are um, really important points. And I just encourage all of us to really take the time to uh, provide our patients, our clients with the skills they need to navigate um, healthy relationships. So uh, that is my time. And uh, thank you very much. I look forward to questions. Thank you very much, Sarah. Um, that was great. And I just want to make a, a quick comment that in terms of mammograms, uh, it's been my experience that women in, uh, who use wheelchairs for mobility 
experience uh, great difficulty in getting mammograms done, uh, even at our own wonderful institution. So we need to do a better job with that, um, just FYI. So one of the questions here, which uh, got a lot of thumbs up was, uh, often families are not on board with a person with uh, a developmental disability expressing their sexuality. So they don't want to talk about it. They don't want to address this issue at all. So how, how would you talk to the family about that? Yeah, I think that um, using a framework of, um, you know, partnering with the family and, you know, partnering with the individual. Some of the things that I like to talk about are that providing more information actually keeps people safer. So mm-hmm. that um, giving more information rather than less is actually a way to protect individuals because it, it gives them ability to be able to um, recognize potentially, you know, what are appropriate or inappropriate um, things that they're noticing, or if, if someone's touching them inappropriately. Um, but giving more information is never a bad thing. And, and presenting it really from that perspective about this is about helping um, families to, um, in the end, actually protect the individuals in their lives and, and to be able to give the tools uh, that are needed to um, navigate healthy relationships. And to talk about it, I think also in a lot of different ways. So I think talking about, that's why I like a frame of, um, you know, self-pleasuring, because I think that's a, that's a hard topic to talk about with families, especially um, for individuals um, who have younger children, for example, um, or potentially individuals with disabilities that, that people feel um, like they don't want to be giving a lot of independence. But to talk about really a skill that um, that we can provide that actually helps to um, allow someone to explore the range of, of, of sexuality in terms of like what gives them pleasure. And then that is really a fundamental human right. That's great. I, I like that approach a lot. There's a comment here that I think is really interesting, which is police need to be trained to take a sexual assault report from a person with a disability and their family. Um, so police training, I don't know if you have any uh, exposure or experience with that. Yeah, it's a great question. I'm, I'm, I am actually trained as a sexual assault forensic examiner, and I, I, I worked uh, doing that for a while um, and um, certainly saw people come in, um, you know, from all spectrum and some of them uh, individuals with disabilities. And I saw that that was really lacking because once they get to the hospital and have somebody like me who's trained the sexual assault examiner who has skills to be able to ask questions in different ways, um, that doesn't always happen first. So the police may be doing the questioning first. They might be the first on the scene. So really important to have that training. Again, that inclusive, I think, trauma-informed training for police officers. And in San Francisco, we're pretty lucky. We do have a sexual assault, a special victims unit that have specially trained detectives. Um, but again, that's not always the frontline police officers. So I think um, advocating for that in, in, you know, people here are from a lot of different um, uh, disciplines and, and areas and, and service sectors. So I think it's important for all of us to really advocate for those types of trainings. Yes, great. Um, so how about men? So you didn't include anything on men there. So what about male sexual health, such as testicular cancer? Yeah. 
Yeah, so um, great. So in the new CDC guidelines um, for um, uh, sexual health and the sexually transmitted infection, they've, they've removed the um, recommendation for doing testicular exams. Um, and yeah, so this is a new thing and sometimes providers, it's a, it's a, it's a catch up to, you know, what is the evidence base and, you know, because this, you know, has happened with, uh, talking about breast cancer screening, for example, you know, are we actually preventing morbidity and mortality by doing these exams? And actually evidence has shown that doing testicular exams does not, uh, prevent, uh, morbidity and mortality. So, um, actual recommendation to not, um, be teaching our young men. You know, I was taught in school at 15, Mm -hmm. start doing it Mm -hmm. because, you know, testicular cancer is a cancer of of young men. Um, But it's actually, the evidence has changed on that. So I don't think there's anything wrong with um, providing education about anatomy and um, talking to people about it. But um, I just, I want to put that forward that the evidence actually doesn't back up uh, teaching um, or performing testicular exams anymore. Well, that's interesting. I guess I'm not up to date on those guidelines. Um, We have about a minute left. There are several questions. Um, Are there any good handouts to give parents or families about sexual health? So in your resources, was there a, a link to a good handout by chance? Yeah. So I, um, in the uh, bottom of some of the slides, I did um, use, I really like advocates for youth. And again, they are, um, they do a lot of research um, and policy around um youth, but I think that it really can be generalized to everybody. So um, they have um, resources on specifically sexual education um, for young people with disabilities. They also have um, talking about sexual education for um, youth in general. And since this conversation should start young, I think that it's a nice place to start. So um, I have that uh, website uh, listed in the bottom of some of the slides. So I, there's a lot of fact sheets there um, that I, that I really recommend. Okay. Um, we, we are out of time, but I'm wondering if you could respond to some of the questions in the Q and a, um, if you could respond to one, I think there's a very, a, a good one about uh, the rights of adolescents and youth around birth control. Um, so I think that's an especially important uh, question, but there's, there's a, at least six other questions that we have not had time to get to, uh, which I think goes to the importance of this topic uh, and our appreciation for you taking the time out of your busy clinical and academic schedule to be with us today. Really appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.